0: Peru, exploring its peoples, politics, and histories. He documented his journey in his 1984 book, *Cut Stones and Crossroads*. Ronald stops by the podcast to talk about his travels, his insights, and his book, now republished in the United Kingdom by Elan Publishing after nearly 35 years. It's a wide-ranging conversation that covers his career as a writer. Peruvian history, and his travels throughout Latin America. So now, here is Ronald Wright. Ronald, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. So congratulations on the re-release of your two new books on Eland, uh, the one that we're talking about today, Cutstones and Crossroads, and another book called uh, Time Among the Maya." It must feel uh, good to have your uh, books republished after, what, 35 years or so? You know, after their initial publications and introducing your books to uh, a new generation of readers.
1: Well, it's always, I think authors always like it when books last and when they come back to life. Um, These books uh, have stayed in print in some markets. and in others they haven't. They, they, they were all published in, in the States and Britain and in Canada where I live. Um, and the British editions had been out of print for some time and so these have come, now coming back, these new books are uh, being done for the British market by Eland who, who are a publisher in London who specialize in travel writing, literary travel writing, that is not guidebooks, travel writing and uh, biography.
0: Mm-hmm. And so this uh, book, "Cut Stones and Crossroads," chronicles your journey from Chiclayo to Copacabana on Lake, Lake Titicaca and, and many other places in between. And you you mentioned somewhere in the book that uh, the Incans haunt you. Uh, I think you use that word uh, "haunt" specifically. So can you, I, I guess, speak to the draw of Peru and uh, the Incan past?
1: Well. Um... That goes back to when I was uh, in my early teens, and I just, uh, you know, I was only about 13, and I happened to read an old Victorian boy's adventure story, which was set not in um, pre Columbian Peru, uh, but in Peru at the time of the last great Inca revolt, which happened 250 years after the Spaniards invaded the country. This, this revolt took place in 1780, shortly after the American Revolution, although I don't think there's any real connection, um, uh, and was led by a descendant of Inca royalty called Tupac Amaru. And uh, this uh, English author, who wrote a lot of adventure stories and and, uh, and books, uh, but happened to have lived in Peru for quite a long time, and when he was living there in sort of 1850s or so, there were still old people around who remembered that great uprising when the Incas almost took back their nationhood. Wow. And that made a, that sort of opened up a whole world for me. It, it opened up a part of the world I knew nothing about. Um, and also the sense of what happens through when, when you know, one civilization is colonized by another and suppressed um, the European colonial enterprise um, seen through an unusual window. And so, you know, it started with typical teenage sort of sympathy for the underdog and so on, and gradually developed into an interest in the past, uh, particularly the history and archaeology of the Americas.
0: Mm. You mentioned in the book that uh, you... You were turning 30 years old while you were on this trip. And elsewhere in the book, you mentioned that it had been eight years since you traveled to Peru. So I'm guessing in your early 20s, you went off into Peru. Can you explain um, what you were doing there and what what drew you to, to visit the country?
1: Oh, well, I, <clears throat> at that time, you're, you're quite right. I, I made the first trip to Peru. There's, there's actually sort of three different trips that I combined in this book. Ah, okay. And I made no secret of the of, of the, the fact, but I did make it into a, uh, as if it is one journey, sometimes remembering earlier journeys. What drew me there was this sort of interest that I had, at that point by for you know since I was 13 I was about when I went to Peru the first time I must have been about 22 um, 21 22 and uh, I don't I ha- it was the first time I'd seen the place for myself I had been to Mexico a few years before um, but had never got down to Peru and so I Drove part of the way and then hitchhiked through Colombia, Ecuador, and into northern Peru, and worked my way south to Bolivia, which is more or less the same itinerary as in the book itself.
0: Mm-hmm. And and during that time, uh, that time span, uh, you know, what I'm just trying to kind of understand what your original motivations were to to travel through that region. Did you have explicitly you know, the intention to to write travel books about Latin America, or was it just a general curiosity?
1: No, in my 20s, I I didn't uh, uh, expect to be a writer. Um, I uh, had taken archaeology at Cambridge in England and also um, in Canada, uh, uh, in Western Canada at uh, at University of Calgary, I'm half Canadian and half British uh, by background, um, and had uh, you know, I was driven, lured there really to see the ancient ruins. That's what I wanted to see because I'd read about them. I'd I'd read uh, John Hemming's um, wonderful book, The Conquest of the Incas, which is still the definitive history of the Spanish takeover of the Inca Empire. And I'd also read classics like the American historian uh, W.H. Prescott, who wrote the history of the conquest of Peru uh, in the 1840s, and also read a great travel book by an American, uh, Ephraim George Squire, who was uh, an early archaeologist, a diplomat, and also a spy who went down to Peru, I think, during some... Some spying for the U.S. government and wrote one of the best travel books ever written about the place. And and it particularly appealed to me because he he got into just about every um, remote Inca ruin uh, then known. And um, he didn't, Machu Picchu hadn't been discovered, but he went to a lot of other places that hardly anyone goes to even now. And it's a lively book, Squire's book. It's a fun read. So, I had those books in my head, and I had my own interest in archaeology. I already had a degree in archaeology, um, and I wanted to see what this, these places for myself. So I spent several months there uh, trying to see as much as possible.
0: Mm-hmm. So when when did the uh, initial uh, spark to, I guess you know, write about your, your travels and write about the region and its history and politics uh, come to you?
1: Well, I think that sank in gradually. I, was one, of my, You know, I, of course, was thrilled on that first trip to see these ruins that I had read so much about and seen photographs of. Um, but a, a discovery that was every bit as exciting and thrilling to me was the, to find that the culture of the ancient Andes was not dead, you know, that, mm-hmm. that, um, the people in Peru at that time, at least half the people in Peru, uh, still spoke the Inca language. Um, it's a smaller proportion now, but still a lot of people do. And, uh, you know, it's tremendous, um, tradition, uh, music, um, the wonderful weavings that they make, um, their clothing, the way they live, um, all survivals of the uh, pre-Columbian world adapted, after of course, after having to deal with a European invasion for 500 years, and occupation first by the Spanish Empire, and then by the Peruvian Republic, which was, for most of its years has been a a sort of uh, internal colony run by descendants of the Spanish um, and other Europeans.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's interesting what you're saying about you know coming to realize that the culture of the ancient Andes uh, was not dead, um, and that this is very much kind of a, a living history and often a, a neglected one, um, especially with the language. Because you know one of the interesting things about this book is that. Uh, you know, throughout the book itself, there there are uh, sections where you translate, um, you, you record and translate some of the poetry and song of the, the native peoples. And it's just, you know, a fascinating uh, kind of, you know, weaving that into the narrative is just fascinating because one imagines that, you know, in a short few decades that, you know, th- this might be lost.
1: Well, certainly I, I had a feeling that... Um... The onslaught of the modern world would, would uh, wipe out a lot of traditional culture, as it has all around the world. It's also wiped out quite a bit of the West's traditional culture. Um, you know, we've lost all kinds of traditions and customs and, and ways of seeing things that we used to have in mm-hmm. in the past couple of centuries. Um, so, yes, that's always been a, a concern uh, of mine. I, I you know, I, I, I'm passionate about. Trying to keep and preserve the, the diversity of the past, or at least uh, um, help uh, keep a keep a record of of what was of what was there and and what what remains. So, um, yeah, learning the language. Uh, you know, some of it was um, stuff I picked up or heard people singing, and and some of it was. Uh, um, written in various books uh, ever since, um, you know, 500 years ago, there's been the uh, the language, which is best known today as Quechua, although a lot of people who speak it have a different name for it, Runasimi, which means the mouth of the people, and um, I call it both in the book, but mainly Runasimi in the book, but mm-hmm. uh, really Quechua is what people think of for it, and um, you know, people often say, uh, oh, it's not a written language. Well, in actual fact, it has been written for 500 years, and we're now just on the point. Uh, there's been a lot of scholarship on the ancient Inca system of recording things on quipus, um, which were very complex knotted cords. And it's now looking increasingly likely that the quipus, strange though they look to us, could in fact record language uh, perhaps phonetically, um, and in other words, we certainly know they could u- be used for counting as sophisticated mathematics on them, which people have been able to, to decipher, but it now looks as though it's not true that the Incas didn't have writing. They just didn't have writing with pen and paper. They used these quipus, uh, and it worked very well for them, but unfortunately, the Spaniards uh, burned thousands of quipus, and destroyed them as much as they could because they thought it was associated with the heathen religion of the Incas and they wanted to stamp it out but the language then became written in Spanish Um, and uh, the other thing that was important was that first trip to Peru in 1971 um, there was a reformist military government a sort of liberal left-leaning military government quite unusual which wanted to try and heal the great divide in the nation between the white elite and the indigenous majority. And one of their ideas was to make Quechua uh, an official language of the country. And so they were publishing books on quite a large scale, including school books and dictionaries and grammars of uh, Quechua.
0: And um, this uh, government that you're referring to here is that the Velasco dictatorship, or did that is that what evolved into the dictatorship?
1: Well, yes, it was the, the Velasco. It was uh, a, a military dictatorship. These reforms were all top down, but it was, as I say, liberal um, and had good ideals. Uh, you know, they they wanted to help the poorest people. They enacted land reform, um, they they reformed uh, education, and uh, made the country bilingual, and did a number of important uh, things, um, which didn't last, and towards the end, after Velasco himself died, uh, it turned more repressive, and um, there, there was undoubtedly meddling by foreign powers against mm-hmm. him. just just as it would be later against Allende in Chile. Um, But the, the, the Velasco government was very important, I think, in making the transition from the old sort of colonial way of political life and social life in Peru towards something... Much more modern and inclusive, although that process is far from complete.
0: Mm, It it sounds um, parallel to what uh, Morales was perhaps trying to accomplish uh, in Bolivia, uh, much later.
1: It 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 has a lot. It was certainly a forerunner of that, and uh, of course, Bolivia was part of Peru in the colonial period. The uh, I use the term Peru a bit loosely um, because ancient Peru the the Inca Empire controlled a large part of South America, all the way from southern Colombia down through Ecuador, the whole of what is now Peru, the northern half of Chile, all of what is now Bolivia, and the northwest quarter of Argentina.
0: Mm. And even the the Spanish, you know, cut that pie in a, in a very similar way with the Viceroyalty of Peru, which was just this kind of sweeping uh, geographic They did, area.
1: and then... They did, and then uh, I think it was after the rebellion of uh, Tupac Amaru in 1780 that they split it in two, and they made Bolivia uh, under the viceroyalty of Buenos Aires in what is now Argentina, and and uh, the viceroyalty of Lima controlled only, you know, geographically about two thirds or half of of the old Inca Empire.
0: Yeah, so this is interesting that you know the. You know the, the the social relations between the uh, the Latin American uh, the Peruvians of Spanish def- descent the criollos and kind of the 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 runa the 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 native uh, descendants of the native Incans um, and I'm just wondering you know, we get the sense that things are kind of not right in in your book in terms of like social political relations um, between these two groups um, but can you just you know put some color on that sketch for us. You know, what was it like? Was there a very stark uh, uh, divide between these two groups back in the 80s? And do, do you have any um, sense of how they might be today?
1: Um, well, yes, I think there's been a lot of change because, it, you know, it, it, the change was just beginning with Velasco in the 1970s. And even though there have been many different governments with different political philosophies, some of those changes acquired a momentum of their own, and um, there was certainly um, a revival of pride in the uh, indigenous heritage, um, and you know that that uh, that began back in 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 the late nineteenth century from sort of archaeological point of view. There were wonderful ruins, and then, of course, uh, Machu Picchu becoming uh, being um, Made known to the outside world and uh, and made accessible, um, and the 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 extraordinary buildings in Cusco itself, which was the capital of the old Inca Empire, um, and you know a lot of Peruvians took pride in those. But in general, uh, it, it was more the people, the indigenous people, and the people of mixed heritage were more interested in in looking at that side of it, whereas. The white elites who were very much westernized, who spent a lot of time overseas and saw Peru as a, a means to make money uh, rather than a country with which they identified passionately. I mean, of course, many exceptions to this, but it was a sort of classical neo colonial thing, such as you would find uh, at that time in South Africa, for example, although there was no formal apartheid, but there was certainly an informal one between the Uh, indigenous people, and the small white elite, and the mixed people in between. Um, And that is is changing fast. I mean, Peru uh, has now had two presidents um, of uh, indigenous descent, um, the most recent being Ollanta Umala, uh, who is half Quechua and half Italian, um and there also was Alejandro Toledo before him who was uh, culturally progressive although politically quite conservative i think he was a graduate of uh, harvard business school um, but anyway changes are happening slowly uh, and you mentioned morales in bolivia who's who's gone further than many of these others in, in 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 making changes and and of course he's now been overthrown and there is opposition from that same white, mainly white elite that wants uh, you know saw it's grasp over the over the country, weakened and now wants it back.
0: Mm. and I don't think the uh, the elections are or have been yet resolved in in, in bolivia.
1: they haven't no. it's been postponed several times um, and and most recently well, the, the the reason given is covid the the COVID pandemic and certainly bolivia's had problems with covid, but it's in the interests of of the group who overthrew Morales to uh, and to put off the election as long as possible because his party still exists and most opinion polls have shown that it, didn't, it doesn't matter whether Morales himself comes back or not that his party and the things that he started these reforms that he he began have have uh, ran for fourteen fifteen years um, that uh, you know that. That his party would probably be the winner when mm. there is an
0: election. And not to get on uh, a tangent about Bolivia, but it it is uh, an irony that you point out to in the book uh, that you know the great liberator of uh, Latin America, you know Simon Bolivar, um, was in fact himself uh, part of this Spanish elite that you're referring to, and indeed. Um, Know, sought to not offer you know full liberty to those uh, people who weren't of Spanish descent themselves
1: that's certainly true yes um, I mean bolivar is a great hero but uh, as in many cases um, people don't know the whole story and he he was actually uh, against um Uh, He reimposed the tribute on the Indians. The first liberator of Peru was uh, General San Martín, who was from Argentina. And he declared Peru bilingual back in the early 1820s, and he also abolished the sort of head tax, the Indian tribute imposed on indigenous people. And Bolivar reversed both of those reforms. Hmm. And then got Bolivia named after him, but not by the indigenous people.
0: (laughs) Yeah it seems like there there's still growing pains here and 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 what we've been seeing lately and indeed in you know well
1: yes the tremendous amount of unfinished history resulting from the European invasion just as there is in North America I mean in in your country and where I live Canada and the United States have you know almost completely overrun the indigenous peoples, who are now starting to recover somewhat and and Demand rights and demand the fulfillment of treaties that were broken, and uh, this is a similar story, just uh, different circumstances and and demographically much more difficult for them because they, you know, they are a small percentage of the modern populations of North America, but uh, in South America, in Bolivia, they are the majority population still, and in Peru, depending on how people identify, which is always is up to them rather than us to classify. But
0: it's roughly 50-50. Mm-hmm. In, in the United States and, well, North America, uh, many of the, well, the United States and Canada, many of the, I can speak to the United States only, but it, it seems that many of the, the Native Americans are effectively in concentration camps, you know, away from what would have been the centers of power Whereas in places like Peru, there is a bit more um, kind of general integration, although I suspect in cities like Lima, uh, they are perhaps uh, more Spanish than uh, indigenous. And, you know, of, of course, in the Andes and in the kind of periphery, there are fewer Spanish descendants there.
1: Yes, that, that's right. The the stronghold of the indigenous culture is the is the Andes, the great mountain range that runs all up the western side of South America, and on the coast, uh, the, the narrow sort of seaboard of all of those countries along the Pacific, which is largely desert but has a lot of irrigated commercial agriculture, and and also with the the, the uh, where the earliest civilizations arose. Um, that that area has lost its indigenous character and everybody along the coast, except for recent migrants from the Andes, uh, tends to speak Spanish and consider themselves either to be of mixed origin or to be Europeanized, westernized.
0: Yeah, if it sounds like... uh to, to people that <laughs> we're, were descending into, you know, politics and history and these yeah, kind of...
1: Yeah, I don't want to go too deeply down here, but it is a very important... I mean, looking at my old book, it was an important theme of the book, the mm-hmm. relation between the, the conquered and the conquerors and their descendants. It's a theme that runs all the way through the book and which is still unresolved there, just as it is here.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's, it's fitting that... That we're talking about them, as you as you just mentioned, because it's such a central uh, part of of your book. And you know, interestingly, when one starts reading the book, it seems like it's going to be this kind of very chronological, journal like travelogue of you know this guy's adventure in in in, a, in South America. But one quickly, I guess, realizes that there is uh, a lot going on here, and um, your your interests. Are far from the kind of standard tourist interest, right? Yeah, you see the sites, but you're interested in these injustices, and you're interested in these very kind of difficult uh, questions. I mean, you do go to see the major sites, but you know there there's a a gravity to to this book uh, that I think is also uh, very very f- fulfilling to read in, in a travel book. So I was wondering if you could maybe speak to this decision to to write. You know, in this journal-like quality, from time to time, um, but also kind of weaving in there these very kind of serious topics from the perspective of writing.
1: Well, yes, I didn't start the book until after that um, that trip in 1979 and 1980. That is the sort of framing um, journey uh, to the to the in the book, um, and. By that time, um, I had read a lot more and learned a lot more and seen a lot more um, in in Peru and other parts of Latin America. I spent quite a bit of time also in in Mexico and Central America, and noticed similarities and, and no, noticed um, a great deal of political and social and um, content to the. It was a way of understanding where these modern countries came from, how they developed. Uh, and, you know, as somebody who's always been interested in the past, my way of understanding a place is to try and understand where, how it got to be the way it is. Um, and But in actual fact, the thing that spurred writing a book and deciding to write a travel book rather than, say, a history book um, or an archaeology book... Uh, was when I uh, was struck down by uh, hepatitis in Peru, which was a, a common fate of travelers in those days, um, because there was no vaccination against it. Um, just Hep A, which you get from dirty water or dirty, you know, food that hasn't been uh, cooked very safely, um, and. I was laid up really quite sick, and I was very lucky that it happened to me in a small hostelry in a a part of the Andes about 50 miles away from Cusco, uh, run by a a Canadian and and an American couple who'd sort of gone down there as I had, as sort of hippie backpackers, and they had decided to make their homes in Peru and had uh, rented. an old railway station and adjacent buildings in in uh, Ollantaytambo, which is a beautiful and very traditional Andean town between Cusco and Machu Picchu, uh, and on that railway line that goes to Machu Picchu. And so I was hold up there, and um, uh, Randall, one of the owners, uh, had a terrific library. He was getting interested in the anthropology and the history and had built up a great library of things that, uh, about Peru that, I, that he lent me and also just other books. Um, he was a great reader of, of fine fiction and, and, um, l- you know, so I, while I was convalescing there for a couple of months, I started reading and then, and among my reading were were some travel books. And I, um, noticed that travel books were sort of coming back into fashion. The travel book is the, the literary travel book, that is, is something which sort of goes in and out of fashion. And it was very much in fashion in the 1930s when you had people like Evelyn and Warren, and Graham Green, and um, many others, uh, Freya Stark, and so on, writing travel books. And then they um, sort of fell out of fashion a bit and then came back in the late 70s and early 90s with... Writers like Bruce Chatwin and Paul Theroux and Peter Matheson. Um, and I was a great fan of Peter Matheson's work in particular, so I thought, well, this is a oh, another great writer from the nineteen thirties who really changed the genre is Robert Byron, whose mm. Road to Oxiana is an absolute classic. And was he was a great influence on Bruce Chatwin. And I read him and he made the travel book he saw the travel book is in, 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 it's a kind of writing where you can put in anything you're interested in. You can get away with anything in a travel book. <laughs> you can, <laughs> you can, you can tell fallacious stories. And at the same time, you can go and see a piece a, an ancient ruin or a piece of artwork and, and, um, bang on about it, uh, knowledgeably if you have the interest. So, um, I followed that model of using the framework of the journey and the incidents along the road and the ordinary sort of experiences of of uh, terrible places to stay at night and dreadful food and and, and bone-jarring days-long uh, bus trips and old-school buses through the mountains and uh, you know to talk about anything that I'd noticed or was interested in. So it, rem- it seems. Sorry, go on.
0: I, I was just going to ask if you remember what those books were you read at your friend Randall's.
1: Um. Oh well, some of them. Uh, I I read John Barth's *The Thoughtweed Weed Factor*, which is you know a sort of uh, somewhat postmodern uh, classic novel set at the time of. Back in the days of the early American colony at Jamestown, as as, as I recall, I've not read it since, so I may be wrong. But um, and that stood out as 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 one kind of novel. Um, And I read um, *Shogun*, the the great best selling um, historical novel by uh, of Japan by James Clavell. as that wasn't the kind of book I wanted to write, but I certainly enjoyed reading it. Um and then the other things were more specialized. I think he had good a good edition of Squire Squire's travels and of course he had books like John Hemming's Conquest of the Incas and William Prescott, which I'd already read, but uh, I I certainly looked at them again. And uh, but you know, this is nearly this is more than forty years ago. <laughs> <laughs> um but of the travel books, um, I, I read both uh, uh, Theroux and Bruce Chatwin on on um, on South America. Uh, I didn't think Paul Theroux's book on South America was his finest book. And I, I, I'm an admirer of his writing in general. But at, at that time, he was more interested in his fellow travelers than he was in the places themselves. That's how it seemed to me anyway. Um in his latest book about mexico it's he's he's got a much more of an interest in the in the local culture and and Mm. politics than he had before
0: just a quick note to say that if you enjoy the podcast please leave a review on your favorite podcasting app or consider supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com slash support That's interesting that, um, you know, during this period of recovery, you know, you're, you're, you're laid up at uh, a friend's house reading books and you get the inspiration to write. And, you know, you've written other books, not just travel books, right? You've written kind of history books. And this seems to be, if I'm not mistaken, the, the genesis of, of that career. You know, the, the being... Oh, yeah, in- yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So being engaged... In history, in, in a living history, in, in a way, this is what sparked that uh, the vocation in you.
1: Well, I think it's absolutely fair to say that Peru made me a writer. If I hadn't had this, this long-held interest in Peru, and hadn't, uh, and also if I hadn't been laid out, so I had time to think about what I, was, you know, turning thirty. It's time when you start to think about what you're going to do with the rest of your life, anyway, if you haven't already done so. And I hadn't. Um, and being having a, 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 a an illness that really sells you for a while um, gives you a lot of time to think. And those two things combining certainly is what made me a writer. I thought when I got back to Canada, I was still too weak to uh, I, I had been making a living as a long-distance trucker. Um, which is how I was paying for my trips to South America and elsewhere. You know, I'd work for driving for six months and then travel for six months, but I couldn't do that when I got back because I just wasn't strong enough. So I thought, well, maybe I should. I'd, and I'd never kept a journal, a, a diary or anything like that while, while traveling or even just at any other time. So I thought, well, you know, I should write down uh, my experiences, and and the things that I've learned. And if it works into something publishable, great. But if it doesn't, uh, at least I've got a record of what I did and, uh, and what I thought at that time of my life. So, uh, yeah, Peru made me a writer. And after that, I, I wrote several works of history, as you mentioned. Um, I've written three uh, novels, uh, one of which is a historical novel set in Peru. Um, and I've also written other things essays about ecology and I, I wrote a, perhaps one of the best known titles I wrote was um, A Short History of Progress which is about the rise and fall of civilizations and what that can tell us about our own mm-hmm.
0: So your first three books were travel books? The um... Yeah, the first three
1: Peru was the first of them all And the first three, um, Cutstones and Crossroads, and then I went to, I was in the South Pacific in Fiji. I wrote a book about Fiji on Fiji Islands, which is also coming back with Eland later this year. And uh, Time Among the Maya, which was uh, the Maya region of Central America. And again, it was a time of civil war, a terrible repression. Uh, in Guatemala and uh, I spent time there because I was worried about what was happening to the Maya people there but also made it into a book where I visited the ancient sites and talked about the ancient culture and the traditional culture and the modern political and social context in a similar way to
0: Cutstones and Crossroads. Mm -hmm. Why did you not continue writing travel books after that?
1: Um. (laughs) <laughs> that, uh, that's a hard question to answer, but it was partly just uh, chance. It so happened that when I'd finished Time Among the Maya, um, it was just a few years before the 500th anniversary of Columbus's first voyage to the Americas, 1492, it was 1992 was about three years away. The Time among the Maya was published in 1989, so you're three years off. And among the things I've read um, in in the Maya area in Mexico and in Peru were accounts of what happened from the indigenous by the indigenous people themselves, and some very important ones written about Peru. You know, you know the old saying that. It's the winners who get to write history, and that is largely true. But it's truer to say that uh, the it's the winners' history that we read, um, uh, or at least did until recently. Um, in you know, I, I just in my reading, I discovered that you know uh, there's uh, a whole history of the conquest of Mexico written by. Moctezuma's grandson. Um, there are eyewitness accounts written in the Aztec language by uh, some of the, the men who tried to fight off the conqueror Cortez. And in Peru, there is one of the best sources is a fairly long memoir written by Titu uh, Titucusiupanqui, who was a nephew of Atahualpa, the Inca, captured and killed by Pizarro, and there are a lot of other things like that. So I wanted to write a book. I thought this is the opportunity to get people to read these things and to see, this, to see what happened, to see the discovery of the Americas not as some great triumph for Europeans, but to see what it was like for the people who were unfortunate enough to be discovered. So that that led me to a book called Stolen Continents, uh, which is essentially long a series of long quotations from in, uh, indigenous uh, writers and speakers uh, over five centuries. It ended in the nineteen nineties nineteen ninety, and and uh, woven together with my just sort of giving the historical context of all these.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, as uh, as your. Prefer- mentioning there the the works of um, histories and the accounts of the conquests um, from the perspective of the the natives um, the, the native inhabitants. you know I, w- I was just thinking, you, know, we we don't even need those accounts for us to understand how um, brutally, um, disastrous and how evil uh, some of the the people were treated by by the Europeans. I mean, even in in Columbus's own account, right? We realize uh, how much of a bastard um, he was and the horrible things that he did. I um, mean, he's very clear about that. But you know, having that other sense of history, I think is is very uh, important. And we're kind of going through uh, around the world, you know, a sense where people want to tell the other side of the way in which they navigate the world, right? With the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, we're seeing kind of a a narrative emerge that many people have turned a blind eye to. So this is very important work.
1: Well, it's, you know, it's, I mean, it's one thing reading between the lines of things written by the colonizers and the conquerors to see the bad things they're doing. And that's always been there, of course, but it's quite another to see stuff actually written by, uh, leading actors on the other side, mm-hmm. um, at the time, um, and getting their perspective and mm-hmm. finding out that a lot of things in the accounts of, uh, of the colonizers or the quote winners, um, uh, were lies and distortions to justify what they did. And, um, or to exaggerate their own accomplishments. I mean, you often see, when, when the Spaniards got to Cajamarca in Peru in 1532 and captured Atahualpa, that's, you often see that still described as the Battle of Cajamarca. And the Spaniards went to great lengths to sort of describe how valiant they were, because there, there was only a few, you know, couple less than a couple hundred of them, but of course they had um, some backup troops uh, drawn from uh, along the way. and uh, But what they neglect to mention is that the, the Inca side, it wasn't a battle. It was a massacre. The Incas were completely unarmed. Atahualpa had, had an army of 50,000 men outside the town. thought he could just come into the, the main square. He had just won the civil war against his brother, Um, All of this, of course, being set up by a terrible smallpox plague. So the Spaniards actually didn't conquer anything on the mainland of North America until after smallpox had taken out at least half and perhaps two-thirds of the population in one go, including the kings and leaders and, and generals. And so there was a civil war between two minor sons to replace the emperor who died in Peru. That's the moment Pizarro shows up. with with an army. Um, And so they described this massacre of 5,000 or possibly 10,000 unarmed people, the courtiers and people just in uniform but without weapons. They described that as a battle. Hmm. And they killed them all. Not one Spaniard was injured.
0: And, of course, if any uh, sub-narratives or alternative narratives or just – any other narrative emerges from the perspective of the Spanish um, you know they're, they're looking at those people and those narratives as illiterate because they don't speak the same language or uh, let's say they don't have a religion or or something because it's not the same, same religion so even if another narrative did emerge uh, it was instantaneously discredited
1: yes very much so. Usually the case, although Peru did have a, um, had two great advocates, um, one of whom was was half Inca and half and Span- uh, Spanish. The um, uh, his name is Garcilaso de la Vega el Inca, or Inca Garcilaso, and um, his mother was an Inca princess, very very high up in the Inca royal family, and his father was a conquistador, and he. Um, Moved to Spain uh, after he grew up in Peru. Grew up in Cusco, the old capital of his mother's people. Moved to Spain, and then in his in his later years, wrote um, the Royal Commentaries of Peru, which was uh, tremendously influential. It did find readers actually because he w- because he was bicultural and bilingual. He was able to appeal to write a. a a narrative that had had this uh, authoritative voice because he, you know, he was of this people, and um, but to tell it in a way that Europeans could easily grasp and understand. So he compared the Inca Empire to the Roman Empire, and he sort of left it unsaid, but you could draw the conclusion that both the Roman Empire and the Inca Empire had been overthrown by barbarians. <laughs> um, and, uh, he, you know, his book was very influential in the 17th century and led to other writers to take an interest, although that later sort of fizzled out. Uh, but he was a main source for historians such as Prescott writing in the 1840s. And then there was another book, even a stranger and and very unusual work, written in the late 1500s by a man called Juan Puma de Ayala, who was uh, fully indigenous, um, and was probably a, a minor nobleman from the area around Ayacucho, and he wrote a huge book of more than a thousand pages long with 500 illustrations. And it's written mainly in Spanish, uh, not very good Spanish because his Spanish was far from perfect, uh, but you can follow him. And uh, quite a bit of Quechua and Aymara and other languages uh, in there, too. And it was essentially a letter to the king of Spain saying your people came over here and did all this, overthrew our civilization and replaced order with chaos. And so what are you going to do about it? You know, we're not disloyal to you. You're the king of Spain. You're the ruler of the world. But we want you to clean up the mess that your subjects have, your conquerors have made here. And he, he makes probably the first appeal, certainly the first that I know of by um, somebody colonized by europeans um for what amounts to self-government for peru Mm. and he says you know your majesty can be the ruler of the world but should not should not have jurisdiction you can be the ruler of the world but here we should run our own affairs and he said he says i suggest we have a descendant of the incas to rule peru we have a descendant of um what he calls Grand Turkey, meaning that the Islamic world should to to rule uh, the Middle East, um, a uh, a prince of Guinea, meaning Africa, to rule Africa, um, and and you can rule Europe if you want. <laughs> he puts he puts all this into an extremely interesting and eccentric narrative. And he wrote this book. It's just a manuscript, never published. Sent it to Spain. Somehow it got intercepted. If it had got to Spain, it would almost certainly have been burned. Um, uh, but the manuscript survived, and but nobody knew it existed until it turned up in a library in Copenhagen in 1908. And that's become a huge source for Peruvian history and anthropology. It's it's absolutely important, more important than Gasparo in many ways because he was not writing from a European worldview for Europeans. He was writing very much from an indigenous Andean worldview. Mm -hmm. And uh, he divides the whole world into four parts with one person in charge who's happy to let the uh, Spanish king be the sort of figurehead ruler, rather like Queen Elizabeth is today. Um, And the Inca empire was divided into four parts with the Inca being the ruler, but of course the Inca was more than just a figurehead. So anyway, I, I could bang on about this. I, I do describe um, his life and, and his book in in, in my book, and uh, it is an extraordinarily interesting and important work from outside the Western world by somebody affected very badly by the Western world and who kind of saw what was happening and, and made this extraordinary appeal for self-government.
0: And some of the uh, images... More, sorry. Sorry. Yes. Go on. Some of the images from that book, I think, are reproduced um, in in the new edition, and they're just uh, fascinating illustrations of you know the the world from their point of view, and also um, you know the conquest from their point of view. They're they're uh, illustrations of you know murder and um, kind of the way in which the world is conceptualized. Fascinating uh, document.
1: He didn't hold back. He shows murder, uh, rape, brutality, uh, but he also shows how things were in the time of the Incas. So he has a whole series of, of um, hundreds of his drawings that show, are um authentic illustrations of the way of life of the Incas.
0: Well, um, we are getting short of time here. And I wanted to know if you would be willing to read a passage from your book.
1: Uh, yes, yeah, sure. A, a, a short uh, bit picked out here. Um, this uh, just just before I read it, I'll just very briefly give a little context. I mean, one of the, one of the things that has a, that makes Peru so fascinating to me and very important in terms of world history is that it was one of the great cradles of civilization, and civilization arose beginning, just starting with with the invention of farming about 10,000 years ago, and then reaching the stage of the first cities and towns and governments that we know of around 5,000 years ago. And Peru was one of those cradles where there was a whole series of cultures, going back 5,000 years. We now know that the earliest cities on the coast of Peru are as old as the early cities in Mesopotamia and what is now Iraq. Uh, at that time in the world, there were no cities anywhere else. This is before the Egyptian pyramids, before Stonehenge. The only two places in the world with, with cities were Mesopotamia or the Middle East and Peru. Um, and then This is a this actually this finding of these very early dates for these Peruvian cities um, has only happened in the last 15 years or so with new archaeological work and is not in my book. Um, Just shows how fast uh, things are changing. Um, But anyway, what I'm going to read here is a visit to what was, at the time of my travels, was thought to be the earliest, or almost, or one of the earliest. Um, cities in Peru, a place called Chavin. And Chavin came, arose in the eastern Andes about 3,000 years ago. So that's about 2,000 years after the first civilization that we now know of, but also about 2,000 years before the rise of the Incas. So this is very early, very important. It's, it became the foundational culture of um, the civilization of the mountains. So I'm on my way there. A bus takes me east to the continental divide. The path is a tunnel through the mountain spine, a connector between worlds. On the Pacific side, it is snowing hard, but on the Amazon watershed side, it's sunny and warm, despite the altitude of 14,000 feet. After traveling many hours, I notice beside the road a wall, familiar from book illustrations. We have arrived at the temple of Chavin. A passion plant is growing on the masonry, its long scarlet flowers and pendulous fruit, crashly suggestive of male organs. The corner at the ruined temple nearest the road is made of long stone slabs laid in even courses. At one time, this wall had a row of grotesque, cat-like heads projecting from tenons, One of these these heads is still in place. It gives me a demented 3,000-year-old grin as I turn toward the nearby town. Modern Chivine has a, a mean, scruffy look. Its streets are unpaved, muddy, better suited to the numerous pigs than to human inhabitants. On a big house near the plaza, someone has scrawled, Mr. Mayor, why haven't we got water or drainage? I ask myself the same question when I see the inside of the Hotel Inca. In a town much like this, back in 1880, was born a boy named Julio Cesar Tello, who would unearth the secrets of ancient Chavin. He was short and stocky, descended from Aymara people settled by the Incas in the mountains behind Lima. Though his parents were peasant farmers, they could trace their forebears on both sides of the family to ancient indigenous nobility. Tello grew up speaking Aymara and some Quechua. All his life, he would pronounce Spanish roughly, though he soon came to write it very well. He had an Aunt Maria who worked as a maid in the presidential palace in Lima. Recognizing the boy's genius, she brought him to the capital and enrolled him in a school where he had to put up with the insults of classmates who called him El Indio, the Indian. Telio went on to medical school and later won a scholarship to Harvard. There, archaeology seduced him away from medicine. He continued his studies in Oxford, Berlin, and Paris. Returning to Peru, he founded several museums, became member of parliament for his hometown, and was instrumental in making the first antiquities laws. He began digging at Chavin in 1919. From those excavations and many others, he established Chavin's importance as the first Pan-Andean horizon, uh, an art style from the northern Andes to the south, and possibly a powerful state controlling the highlands 2,000 years before the Incas. A story goes that while while Talia was digging, A Lima politician came along to visit the excavations. Hey, you, where is Dr. Tayo? The visitor called out to a figure he took for a local Runa workman. In that hut over there, senor, the indio replied, doubling around through the hut's back door to meet the astonished politician coming in the front.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Uh, I really enjoyed your book. I think it's uh, fascinating and there's a lot uh, here to to chew on. Uh, Thank you so much for your time.
1: Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.
0: You can find the episode show notes and much more at TravelWritingWorld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com slash support.